Well, when I was a kid, I used to love horror films. Uh, any horror film that came out, I used to go to it. And so, but we're talking about uh, the original Frankenstein, uh, all the Wolf Band stuff with uh, with Lon Chaney Jr. and uh, the uh, the Dracula picture with Bela Lugosi. And of all the pictures that I saw back in those days, my memory is was the most affected, and my my feelings were. I was scared the most by the Dracula picture. Fellow Lugosi scared the hell out of me. <laughs> Dare you behold the unmitigated terror that awaits you this night? And tis I, Danielle, the dreadful doppelganger of Penny Dreadful, and I am here to apprise you of the fact that voting has started for the 21st annual Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. The reason I'm here is to talk about Dan Curtis. Uh, the Monster Kid Hall of Fame, but I, uh, I would be remiss in not uh, thanking those who nominated Terror at Collinwood once again in the category of Best Podcast. Uh, we're on the ballot again this year, so uh, if you choose to vote for Terror at Collinwood, I certainly would appreciate it. However, uh, there are some amazing podcasts on there, and any one of those uh, certainly deserves the Rondo Award. Some of my friends whose podcasts are sensational and I love listening to are on there. Uh, also, uh, Penny Dreadful was nominated for a favorite horror host again this year, which I, I think might be a, an honorary nomination since we only do like one special a year. But yes, uh, many alongside many of my friends and fellow horror hosts on there as well in that category. But the reason I'm posting this today is to uh, let you know that there's another category called Monster Kid Hall of Fame, and I really would like to encourage you to write in Dan Curtis for Monster Kid Hall of Fame. It is a write-in category. You can write in up to six nominees. Uh, and let me just explain a little bit about what this is. Now, first of all, you can find the full ballot at rondoaward.com. And you can send your votes into Taraco, T-A-R-A-C-O, at AOL.com. Make sure you sign your ballot. You can vote in as many or in as few categories as you like. Now, the Monster Kid Hall of Fame Award is a rare and very special award. It goes to those who've made a permanent mark on the world of classic horror appreciation, and several of its recipients are or were fans of the genre themselves. Uh, some past inductees include Forrest J. Ackerman, Ray Bradbury, Barry, Bob and Kathy Burns, Basil Gogos, Don Glute, Zachary, Vampira, Ray Harryhausen, Cortland Hull, uh, Rich Coves, Vanguli, Vern Langdon, Tim and Donna Lucas, Coffin Joe, George Chastain, Veronica Carlson, Sarah Karloff, Count Gore Duvall, Mr. Lobo, Gilbert Gottfried, Dennis Drucktennis, Roger Corman, Bobby Boris Pickett, Elvira, Paul Nashi. I'm just pulling names from this list, but there are quite a few more. And I can tell you who isn't on this list after 21 years. Don't you think Dan Curtis should be on this list? Because I do. And I encourage you, if you're going to vote in the Rondo Awards, to consider writing in Dan Curtis for Monster Kid Hall of Fame because Dan Curtis deserves to be among those who have already been inducted. He should have been at this point. Why isn't he? Just for Dark Shadows alone, Dan Curtis should be in the Hall of Fame, the Monster Kid Hall of Fame. But that's not it. That's not everything he did. He did Kolchak, the Night Stalker. He did adaptations of Dracula, the Turn of the Screw, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with Jack Palance. My goodness. 
Burnt Offerings, Trilogy of Terror, the list just goes on and on, all the amazing things that Dan Curtis did. But not only that, as I mentioned earlier, inductees in the Monster Kid Hall of Fame, a lot of them were actually enthusiasts, if you will. And you're going to see in subsequent uh, uh, videos, if you're watching the video version of this or the audio version of this, you'll hear it in these interviews, courtesy of MPI Home Video, where Dan Curtis himself talks about his enthusiasm for the genre. You will hear from collaborators like Sam Hall, Lara Parker, who also vouch for Dan Curtis's knowledge and passion for this stuff. Why? Why is Dan Curtis, after 21 years, still not in this Monster Kid Hall of Fame. It sure would be great to get Dan in there. So if you would, please consider writing in Dan Curtis for uh, Monster Kid Hall of Fame. Uh, if you want to vote for Tara at Collinwood for uh, Best Podcast, hey, who am I to stop you? I'd Honestly, I would rather you write in Dan Curtis. You can only vote for one thing on the run. <laughs> you only have time to do one thing in the Rondo Award ballot. I would rather you write in Dan Curtis. He should be in the Monster Kid Hall of Fame. But let's listen in or watch these videos here, and uh, you'll see what I'm talking about. Again, you can see the full ballot at rondoaward.com. So I started to make this story much scarier and much spookier. And the ratings kept going up and up and up. And then I finally decided, well, let's see how far I can go with this thing. I'll go for the scariest, most awful thing I can remember as a kid, go for a vampire. The plan was never, of course, to uh, uh, use him beyond sticking a stake in his heart at a certain point. He was supposed to be a true marauder. He was, he was Dracula. He was, uh, he was a bad guy. And when we put the vampire on, forget it. I mean, the ratings went through the roof. I have never seen anything like this in my life. And ABC then started to use it as a sledgehammer. In, in order for a station to get the show, and everybody wanted the show now, they said, well, you can't delay it. You can't run it at 11 o'clock at night. You have to run it in our live time period. If you don't take it live, you can't have it. And that's how they cleared, you know, a schedule that could compete with all the other networks. He had, a, he had danger about him, because as the vampire, he was scary. Uh, but there, there was a vulnerability as well, and the storyline did not hurt that. Because when we tried to perpetuate, when I realized that I couldn't kill off this, this monster, and I had to find a way to bring a vampire back every day. I had to figure out some way to make that happen. And that's when I decided to make him the reluctant vampire, the guy who didn't want to be a vampire. Well, and then he became a tragic figure. I mean, we had to put on special people to process the mail that used to come in gigantic truckloads. Dark Shadows would have ended after the first week without Dan's story input. Uh, he simply jumped in and knew exactly what he wanted when he didn't know what he wanted, but which he told, which we were supposed to guess what he wanted and come up with something that he liked. And then he would have other ideas. We had ideas that he loathed, would never do. Uh, I don't know where he had his genius for uh, horror, but he had it. And one learned much more from him than we did from Lovecraft or any of the books that uh, he 
brought us to read. He also, at one point in the game, hired a speed reader to go through absolutely every horror dictionary that there was. And then he would throw a synopsis at, it, at us and say, now, I thought we could, might work this in according to with these characters. Sometimes they worked, and when they didn't work, he would uh, be gracious and say, no, that didn't work, uh, you know. But it's his show. I, uh, I can only take uh, a certain amount of, uh, well, the writers could only take a certain amount of credit for it, really. But we all knew that at the time. And he was, uh, then, as I implied earlier, a rather fearsome character because he believed in his own thoughts so much. And I certainly didn't believe, you know, I never expected to write horror, and Gordon had never written horror before. And there never was anyone that uh, had that I know. No, there really wasn't. So uh, he was uh, an incredible man to work for, and really inspiring man. And I came out of the thing, uh, the whole experience, feeling that I could write horror, which I've never tried to write again. <laughs> and I don't know why that is. ABC decided to move the show from 3.30 to 4. We realized that uh, not only did we now have the women, but we had all these kids that were huge fans of the show. And uh, well, we knew that before, of course, because outside the studio on uh, 53rd Street, when we would come out at the end of the day, there'd probably, they could be up to 500 kids out there yelling and screaming for autographs. And they would write uh, the names of their favorite actors on the wall of the building in uh, Magic Marker or something. And I, I would tell the actors, uh, you better, better take a good look at that wall. I don't want to catch anybody out there at night putting their own name on there. Your name starts to disappear. You, you lose your count out there. The wall count is very serious. <laughs> but we knew we had this great kid audience. And uh, when they moved it to 430, or when, uh, it was uh, uh, just made it easier for the kids to come home. So. It was no big surprise that kids like this kind of thing. None of the things that happened after the show became supernatural were part of the original concept. None of them. And when I knew that I had to find a way to perpetuate the vampire since he became the star of the show, I got a pretty good imagination. And I reached a point where I didn't know what I was going to do next. What kind of a story could I come up with to keep this guy going? And I was always fascinated by time travel, which is part of how this happened. I love time travel. I don't like so much going forward into the future, but I love the stories that take you back into the past. And I've done a number of them other than this. And I thought, wait a minute, why don't we go back 
into the past and find out how Barnabas became a vampire. People have got to wonder, how did he become a vampire? And we'll have a whole other story we can do in the past. And that's what we did. And wow, you talk about success. It was our most popular story. I never wanted to get out of the past. I stayed there forever. And the thing that was so wonderful about it is when Victoria was transported back through a seance, that was my device, and she walks into Collinwood or the old house the way it was in those days. And there are all the same actors playing different roles. The audience went nuts over that. They just loved that. <laughs> and she kept playing it like she was, is she in a dream? Is she dreaming this? Who are these people? Why are they different? The, the biggest problem for me on Dark Shadows was to constantly come up with stories. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could bring in another character that was equally as popular as Barnabas so that every story didn't have to be tied to the vampire, which was the problem with the show. Because if you didn't have the vampire operating as a vampire, the audience wasn't very happy. So it was a true challenge to try and find something else that really worked. And uh, one of my favorite stories is Turn of the Screw, which, which incidentally I did make, did my own version of. Len Redgrave, but I always loved Turn of the Screw, and I thought, well, let's see you do a little rip-off of a Turn of a Screw, do a, our own little version of some kind of a spirit coming to possess the souls of the children. And we brought this little girl onto the show. And normally the way I would start these ideas, it usually it seems to me was always on dark, snowy nights in New York the writers and I up in my office, and we were on Park Avenue, I guess, at that time, two, three o'clock in the morning, and everybody's dreaming, what are we going to do next? And as long as I get the image of something, and I said, there's a telephone, there's an old telephone, and it starts to ring. The kids have found this telephone in the closed-off section of the house, and the telephone starts to ring. And the little girl picks up the phone, and she starts speaking into it. And the little boy said, oh, come on, what are you doing? There's nobody on that phone. And she said, oh, yes, there is. And she hands him the telephone, and he's saying, and he hears a breathing on the other end, and then a click. And then, <laughs> it's something like that, OK? And that's how we started with the Quentin character. And the reason his name was Quentin was Peter Quint in Turn of the Screw. And uh, it became fascinating. We never wanted him to talk because as a silent figure, he was terrifying. And I always started to think, suppose, <laughs> it's like silent films go on the talkies when the time comes when he has to talk. <laughs> the audience is going to hate him, right? What are we going to do? But I loved him. And he became this gigantic hit. And the, the, the children go into the old closed-off wing, and Quentin sitting in his frock coat with his high collar, and, and the, the record playing, the old record playing on the gramophone. And oh, geez, it was a great story. And the audience loved that story. And this is, these are great story elements. And uh, to put our own spin on them. And I, 
it's so difficult to think of a story that, that hasn't in some way been done. And why not go to right to the gold mine where it all really lies? I, we never did Turn of the Screw, but we certainly took elements from Turn of the Screw. Uh, we did Frankenstein. We built our own monster. Uh, some were more successful than others. But it was a, it's a great source, and since I loved all that material, I had great fun in doing, doing our own version of Frankenstein. I just kept picturing the old Frankenstein movies and the electrodes and everything flashing yeah. and the monster. <laughs> it was great. I guess the thing I like most about Dan is he was drawn to the same things that I was. Romantic literature, um, the supernatural, stories that had more than one level unrequited love, um, deep passion, jealousy, fascination, mystery, and everything he did was in that vein. He loved ghosts and old houses with lots of towers and secret rooms and corridors that led into other lives or other times, and um, he loved that genre of literature. The best example of great horror, and it's all about story now, and that's what it's all about. It's all about story, and I will take this with me for the rest of my life. I have never come across a better story than The Night Stalker. After Dark Shadows is a huge hit. I made two Dark Shadows movies for MGM. And I figured, well, that's it for me, the movie business, yeah. Television, I've done television already. I know everything there is to know about directing now <laughs> and uh, all of that. Uh, and I got a phone call from Barry Diller one day. And he said to me, we've got this terrific film. It's a horror film. I said, oh, hold on, Barry. He said, no, 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 we want you to direct this. You'll love this picture. I said, well, what's it called? Who wrote it? He said, Richard Matheson. Richard Matheson? Well, Richard Matheson was my favorite writer. And I mean, I thought Matheson was a genius. So I said to him, look, I'll read it, okay, just because it's Matheson. But I'm not going to direct it. He said, then just produce it. Bring in your own director. Anything you want. I just want you involved with the picture. I said, well, I won't promise, but send it to me. So he sent me the script, and I loved it. I mean, I just absolutely loved it. So I called Barry back, and I said, okay, I'll do it. Yeah. Well, it turned out there was suddenly a problem with Matheson. Because a while back, I had read, uh, it was um, his manuscript on Hell House. Somebody had gotten a hold of it for me. And this is when MGM was saying to me, you make any movie you want. And I found this manuscript from Matheson. So I thought, you know, great haunted house story. I said, this will be terrific. We'll do this, right? So I said, OK. Uh, I want to make this, this thing that by Matheson. I'll see if it's available, and we'll, we'll make an offer to him. 
So we contacted his agent or whoever it was, and we offered him like $10,000. So when Dick Matheson heard that, that I was the guy who was going to come in to do the Night Stalker, he wasn't thrilled. So I, had a, so I have to fly to California to meet. I've got notes that I make on the script. I have to fly to California to meet with Matheson. Uh, <laughs> so I come in and Matheson is there. We'd never seen each other face to face. I mean, he looks like he doesn't even want to talk to me. He doesn't even want to look at me. <laughs> so, you know, the one thing writers love is to be told her, great. So I figured, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll melt the guy down. Then I, I say to him, Dick, I got to tell you, you know, you're my favorite writer. You're absolutely extraordinary. You're, and I give him this whole thing. Not an eye blink. I mean, it didn't even make a dent in the guy. <laughs> They said, let's start talking about the script. So I had notes. And I guess the notes that I gave to Dick, he started to see that perhaps this guy knew what he was talking about. So he started to soften up a little bit. Well, after the Night Stalker, uh, Dick and I became very close friends. And we decided to have to do a lot of things together. When we finished the Night Stalker, nobody knew what we had. It was a little horror movie. Yeah, nobody was getting excited about it. Neither was I. I knew it was a terrific movie, but I never assumed what was going to happen was going to happen. And the first inkling that we had something really incredible on our hands was when we screened it. We had an industry screening at Fox, and they had the big theater at Fox. And Barry Diller and I were standing in the back of the theater, and the place was packed, just filled with people. And the reactions throughout that screening were unbelievable. They were blowing our minds. We couldn't believe the way people were reacting to this picture. Gasping and screaming and laughing. I mean, it just, you know, it was extraordinary. Back in the 70s, when the first television movies started to be made, you know, they were 90 minutes, most of them, at the beginning. The Night Stalker was a 90-minute picture. We shot it for $450,000 in 12 days, you know. Give you some idea of what happened in those days. But it was fun, because the way you made a television movie in those days, and the way you got one sold, totally different from today. Today, it has to be meaningful. It has to be socially significant. It has to be filled with stars. It has to have, you name it, you know, come on. I get sick of the whole game. And everybody plays that game today. To try to sell a television movie today is the most impossible thing in the world. First thing they say to you is, well, we like the idea, but there's nothing special about it. It has to be an event. Or and how, how can we sell this picture? I wouldn't know how to sell this picture to the audience. In those days, the way it worked was, I would go in to Michael Eisner and say, hey, Mike, I got a great idea. I tell him a little story. He said, hey, that sounds great. Let's do it. There weren't nine people that you met with, and we would do it. I had gotten into the habit where every script that we developed, it got made. I never heard of developing a script and not getting it made. Today, scripts are developed and redeveloped, and developed some more, and developed until it ends up as absolute garbage. Everything 
In those days, we had fun, the Great Ice ripoff, the Norlis tapes, any kind of crazy little movie that we came up with. And you got these different stories, these quirky little stories, fun stories. They didn't have to be an event. They just had to be entertaining, fun, good, scary, dramatic, whatever. And we made them fast, and we made them cheap, and it was a great period of time. used in this episode came from MPI Home Video and MGM Home Entertainment and are not intended to infringe on any copyrights. They were simply used to illustrate why Dan Curtis should be inducted into the Rondo Award Monster Kid Hall of Fame. Copyright disclaimer under Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976. Allowances made for fair use for purposes such as criticism, commenting, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, and research. Fair use is a use permitted by copyright statute that might otherwise be infringing. Nonprofit, educational, or personal use tips the balance in favor of fair use. <laughs>